We're thankful and grateful uh, for your goodness, your loving kindness, which is from everlasting to everlasting. Lord, you're better than we could ever imagine or hope for. Lord, we pray that you just be with us in this time as we come to you and as we come to your word. Meet us by your spirit and meet us in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, before we get to the scripture for today, I just want to talk about something that happened to me last week. Last week, um, I was on my way to church taking the subway on the Broad Street line at the Logan substop. That's, that's where I live. And Logan, by the way, is more than a substop. It's actually a community. But a lot of people in Philadelphia just think it's a substop. But anyway, so I'm, I'm sitting there uh, waiting on the subway, and I kind of go off to myself as far down the tracks as I can where there's still a seat, and I sit down, and I open up my Greek New Testament to the book of John, and I start reading it out loud. Not real loud, but quietly. I'm just reading it and meditating on that, and then a young lady comes up. She doesn't come right close to me, but she's a couple seats down, and she sits down. She's young, probably in her late 20s, uh, early 30s, but I noticed that she has a cane, and uh, I'm still reading out loud, pray for me, pray for my wife especially, because I always do this, but I'm reading, and, and she says, what are you reading? Like, wh what is that? What are you saying? Are you speaking in tongues? You know, she's like, what's going on? And so well, I'm actually, I'm reading the Bible. It's the book of John. It's the Greek New Testament, and she just starts to praise the Lord on high. She just goes off, praise the Lord, glory to God, you're a believer in Jesus. I said, yes, I am. And we got into <laughs> this great conversation. It was, it was wonderful. But then she begins to tell me about her testimony, how she came to Christ. And she's, she's telling me this story that um, she got run over by a car, not not on accident, as we say, but on purpose. So a friend, who wasn't a very good friend apparently, uh, was angry with her and ran her over. She said, and then, she back, and then it backed up on me too. So she said, now, before I got hit by the car, I was a Muslim. But after I got hit by the car, and I didn't know if I was going to live or die, I was in pain. She said, all I knew how to do with my Muslim self was cry out to Jesus. And so she said, I cried out to Jesus. And ever since then, I've been a Christian. So we kept talking and, and we got on the subway coming down here and, and we're talking about a few things. And, and she tells me she doesn't have a church. She's like in a rehab kind of place now and all this stuff is going on. But, and of course, I told her about Epiphany Fellowship, but also, you know, just really encourage her. You need to get into a good, healthy church. You need Christian community. You need to grow in Christ. And then she tells me that there's one thing I really struggle with sometimes as a, as a Christian. I said, what is that? She said, I struggle. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm worthy for what God did for me. I don't feel like I'm good enough. And, 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 and then, but then she began to say, but then, you know, I, I just begin to say to myself over and over again, I am worthy. I am good enough. I am. The, and she, she's going on. And, and she said, man, what do you think? And, 
And I looked her in the eye as best I could, and I said, Sister, somebody's going to get mad at me because they were just amening, but, but I said, you're not worthy. I said, I'm not worthy. I said, the truth of the matter is that none of us are worthy. God accepts us and loves us based on His grace. Not because of what you did or what you didn't do. I, I told her, it, when you stand before God, you better not pull out your resume and say, look what I've done. Look how well I've done. I said, your resume, sister, your resume has holes in it. Big holes. Mine has humongous holes in it. It's not a good resume. It might be good for a job. It might be good for someone else. But for a holy, perfect God, my resume ain't going to do it. I said, but God, by his grace in Jesus Christ, allows us to pull out a different resume. And it's the resume of Jesus Christ. But he's put your name on the top, sister. He's put my name on the top. And because of that, we stand before God with confidence, not in my worthiness or goodness, but in his and his alone. So I, I, I tell that story because I think that that's very common I run into it all the time, run into it in counseling. I run into it with people who have been walking with God for years. I, I, I sometimes run into it in my own self, right? I run into that all the time. I'm not worthy enough. The problem is, see, we're looking in the mirror to find whether we're worthy. We're not looking at the Messiah, the mirror is not where you need to be looking. We need to be looking to the Messiah. But what we try to do is put on all this spiritual makeup. And we, we can even glob that John on. We're globbing on the makeup. But no matter how much you put on it, if, now here's a makeup term, if Jesus is not the foundation... Your sin is going to show through. If Jesus isn't the foundation, your sin is going to show through. Let me put it this way. If Jesus is not the foundation, though you think you're on fleek, you're actually on weak. That was kind of weak, I know, but if Jesus is not the foundation... You're not slaying. Is that a word? Okay. You're disobeying. Okay. So Jesus needs to be the foundation. Today, I want to look at John chapter 1. The first 18 verses. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to ask you to read today because I want to emphasize some certain things as I'm reading it. John chapter 1, the prologue of John's gospel. My title is Jesus 101. Now, now, the reality is Jesus 101, that's the introductory course. Like you had to take, if you went to college, introductory psychology. And you get all this stuff thrown at you right away, right? Any introductory course is like that. But this is Jesus 101, but it could also be Jesus 701. Because it, it, it so deeply speaks about our wonderful Savior, Jesus 101. Let me read for you John, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light and all that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear, bit, uh, bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is an incredible portion of Scripture, and John's Gospel is an amazing document that we have. Most, uh, for the most part, we, we know that John's Gospel was written in the late 80s or the early 90s. Now, when I say that, I don't mean Michael Jackson and Boys to Men or for my country fans, Garth Brooks. I'm not talking about that late 80s and 90s, but the first century uh, after Christ. So it was written at that time. Now, for years, critical scholarship on the Bible said it's impossible that it was written then. It must have been written probably in the late second century. It's just too deep. There's, there's too much Christological thought that goes into this. It's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. It, it bears a different type of witness, and there's no way it could have been written uh, that early. But some years ago, 1929, uh, a fragment of the Gospel was, was found in Egypt. He wrote it. Uh, from Ephesus, which is in uh, Turkey, uh, on the western, southwestern coast of Turkey, far away from Egypt. But this fragment of John's Gospel, the 18th chapter, was found in Egypt, and it's dated back to 125 uh, CE, or AD, however you want to do that. Um, so within about 30 to 40 years of the composition of the Gospel, we find a fragment of it thousands of miles away in Egypt, um, that probably means it was written before then. Amen? So, so all this critical scholarship that said, there's no way that a document this profound could be written so quickly. Think about this as so quickly. John 
walked with Jesus, was an eyewitness to everything that Jesus did, saw, uh, his, saw the resurrected Jesus, he, he was there on the day of Pentecost, and now, since then, he's walked with Jesus for 50 or 60 years as a believer, as a pastor, as an apostle. Is that enough, not, not enough time to reflect on Jesus and to think about uh, who he is with the help of the Holy Spirit? Of course it's enough time. So we get this document, and uh, you know some, some documents and even some uh, of the Gospels in the Bible, I'm thinking of Luke's Gospel, give us a purpose statement. And Luke gives us a pers- purpose statement at the beginning of his Gospel. John gives us one near the end. In, verse, in chapter 20, uh, in verse 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in Him. John tells us exactly why he's writing this document. And we've read the prologue, but if you read through the rest of the gospel, it will witness to the signs that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is God in the flesh. But he starts out coming strong here in chapter 1, in this prologue to the gospel. Now, most of you have had the experience probably of going to the beach on a nice warm day, but it hasn't been warm for very long. And so you know, although it's warm outside, you know that that water is still going to be kind of cold, right? So there's two ways to do that, right? One way is the tiptoe way. You kind of put your toe in there, Oh, that's cold, right? You get your foot in, you go in a little bit more, the little waves lap up, and it gets on your knees, and, and, it goes, and, and you just wade into there, and it's cold, and that's a hard way to go in. That's, that's sometimes the way we teach things. John goes the other way here. You know the other way. You know the guy that from 100 yards away is running down the beach and just runs into the water and jumps all the way in. That's what John does here. He jumps in deep right off the bat. So let's look at what this word says. The, the, my title is Jesus 101. The question I want to answer is, is this. Why is Jesus more important than anything? Because that's what he's getting up, getting at here. Jesus is the most important thing. How do we know that from this scripture? Let's look at it. Verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. From the very first statement there, for a Jewish person in the first century, they're going to think of one thing and one thing only. They're going straight to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, right? But he says it differently. He says, in the beginning was the word. Wait a second. I thought it was going to be in the beginning, in the beginning God, but in the beginning was the word. John uses the, uh, a term here. Uh, the Greek word for word is logos. It's not logos, it's logos. So he uses this term logos. For a first century Jew, they would know that term well because it's stamped all over their, their, the Bible that was translated from Hebrew to Greek. So in the Old Testament, they see the, the, the concept of Lagos. For example, it's in uh, Psalm 33. 
And Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the logos tu kuriu, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So they, they understood the logos as the creative word of God, even getting back to Genesis 1, by his word he creates. And so a first century Jew, when he sees the word logos, he or she, they would know, ah, that has something to do with our Old Testament. But not only would a Jew know, but a Greek or a Roman or people all around the, the Mediterranean world would have understood something about this con the, the content of this word logos. It was used by Plato and by other philosophers in ancient Greece three to four hundred years before this. And it became a popular concept to talk about uh, an e eternal world of ideas and thoughts and creativity. So John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, masterfully uses language in a way that people can relate to and get. So much so that one of the early church fathers, uh, Augustine, who was a bishop in, in Africa in the 4th century, he said that he first learned about the Lagos from Plato. But he's going on, he goes on to say, but there's something about it that he couldn't give me. And we'll see what that is in a little while. But So the concept was out there, but how is he using it in this scripture? He says, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, he brings you all the way in to the deep really quickly. The Word, he says, was with God. An interesting phrase as it's originally written. There are a lot of ways in Greek to say the Word was with God. There's other prepositions he could have used. There's other cases that he could have used, but he uses a very particular word, pros tontheon, with God or towards God. Pros is the, is the uh, preposition that he uses there. That word implies face-to-face uh, -face toward another, in relationship with the other. There's other ways that he could have said it that would have had no connotation of relationship, but he says... The word was prostontheon. The word was face to face with God. In the beginning. And the word was God. He leaves no room for, in the first verse of the first chapter of this gospel, he leaves no room for wiggling out of this thing. This word that I'm going to describe to you in the rest of this book, he's God himself. He leaves no wiggle room at all. Jehovah Witnesses want to believe there's wiggle room. They believe he's less than God. They say the word was a God. You can't get that out of the Greek here. You can't get that out of this phraseology here. And that goes back to the 4th century heresy of Arianism, where they were saying that Jesus was a created being less than God or a little God. There's no room for that here. Arianism won't work. But it also says, he, and he uses the same phrase again in verse 2, he was in the beginning prostontheon. He was in the beginning face to face with God. He uses that twice. God and Lagos. Father and Lagos. 
face to face. The other heresy that you can't wiggle into here is called modalism. People believe, yes, we believe in one God and three persons, but we believe that the Father kind of morphs into the Son, and once in a while when he's in the mood, he he becomes the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, but he morphs into these different qualities and becomes different things. No, face to face, in relationship with himself, but as distinct persons. We see this right here in the first couple verses. Why is Jesus the most important thing? Because Jesus is eternal God. He makes it clear. He's eternal God. Uh, he's not only face to face with the Father, but look at verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Boy, he just piles that on, right? So, so for Jehovah Witnesses or others to say, uh, he was the first of God's creation. Um, I've said this before, but learn a little Greek here. All means all, even in Greek, right? So he says, all things were created by him. There's no wiggle room there. There's not another little thing. He, not everything else was created by him, but all things. And then he says, and without him, there was nothing made that was made. Got it? understand are you tracking with me john says you you got this everything made by him what does that mean to you what does that mean to me besides the fact that he is the divine sovereign of the universe why is jesus more important than everything else because he's the creator god of everything there's Nothing that you run into. There's no place that you go. There's no time that you have in your life over which Jesus Christ is not sovereign. The problem is so many times, how do we treat Jesus? We treat him as if he is a guest in our home. Come in, Jesus. Love you. Love you. We got some turkey and mashed potatoes. Come on in. You can come in the living room. Yeah, come on into the dining room. Oh, you were going to go upstairs. No, you can't go upstairs. <laughs> Don't look in the refrigerator. No, no, hands off the refrigerator, Jesus. Uh, you you want to go upstairs? You want to go in my bedroom? I'm <laughs> afraid not. That's not going to work. We treat Jesus as he is a guest so many times, but he's not. He's the owner, he's the creator. He has the run of the house. He has the run of your life. I invite you into every part of my life, but <laughs> my thought life, I'm just going to kind of do this thing over here for a little bit. No, he owns it all. He wants it all. He deserves it all. Jesus is eternal God. Not only that, as we go on to read, look at verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Not only is Jesus eternal God, but Jesus is the one who brings light and life. He brings light, and he brings life. That's going to be a major emphasis in uh, John's gospel. Jesus as the bringer of 
light. And I love the way he says it in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When, when you're in the darkness and when light comes, darkness cannot and will not be able to stay there. Darkness and light don't coexist in the same place. One has to go. And when light comes, darkness must flee. This again brings us right back to Genesis 1-3, the, the creative act in, in the third verse of Genesis. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Jesus, again, we're seeing his eternality. We're seeing him as the creative God. He is the one who brings light and who brings life. And yet, even as he brings that, many times it is rejected. Look for me with, for a second at John chapter 3. Of course, you know John 3.16, famous verse in his whole conversation with Nicodemus, and he loves the world and gives his son, uh, and he's going to say he didn't come into the world to judge the world, but the, that the world might be saved through him. And yet, judgment comes. Verse 19 of John 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. How do you know that? Because their works were evil. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Darkness and light. There's so much clarity in God's word. And, and one, of, one of my struggles in my own soul, not just with, with Christians or other people, but in my own soul, is that many times we want to begin to look at things in a much more complicated way than God is looking at it here. He says there's darkness and there's light. But sometimes we get a lot of religion in us, we, we get a lot of, we can even use Bible all kind of ways, and we can parse words to say, yeah, but did it really say this? Kind of what happened in Genesis 3. Does it really mean that? Or maybe it could mean this. Darkness and light. Jesus says, I came to give you absolute clarity. Don't confuse it. Don't make it harder than it is. Religion can do that sometimes. I remember not long after I got saved, I was a freshman in college, and it was the kind of late in my freshman year, after I've been saved for a long time, like weeks. Um, and there was, our, our campus was doing this fasting thing, and we were fasting, and if you fasted and didn't use your meal card that day or whatever, the money was given to, you know, to help uh, feed people that needed food. And so I said, well, I'm a new Christian, fasting, I saw that in the Bible somewhere, I should do that, and it's for a good cause, I'm going to fast. And man, I was fasting like crazy. I was such a good faster that day. I was like, I'm fasting, man. Then it got to be about 11.15 in the evening. I, I had said, I'm not just fasting three meals. I'm fasting the whole day in Jesus' name because I'm a Christian now. So I fasted. At 11.15, <laughs> my tummy was feeling very hungry. 
So I called my favorite local pizza place. I knew it would take like 45 minutes for the pizza to get here. But I was a believer. The pizza came early. It came at 11.55. And I said, touch not the Lord's anointed. Do his prophets no harm. I will not touch that pizza. At 12 p.m., I locked the door of my room. And two roommates did not want to see them at that time. 12 o'clock. I ate the first slice of that pizza. Pepperoni and mushrooms, if I recall. It was good. But it wasn't as good as that second slice. Or the sixth slice. Or the eighth slice. I ate the whole thing. And I didn't think anything of it. But, but it, that's often the way we can be if we're not careful. We, we, we parse things and we get religious and we say, is this really wrong? I was fasting, but I was a glutton at the same time. There's something wrong with that. And if we're not careful, we can hide behind religious mumbo jumbo and, and we can kind of try to live in both worlds, but the light has come into the world. And he's going to say, if we look back in chapter 1, starting in verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He's rejected. The light is rejected. But he says... Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, the light comes. Jesus comes. And he says, receive me, believe me. The light is here. And in him is life. I remember not long after my wife and I moved to Philadelphia, we came here in 1989, probably a year or two after that, we were working with a brand new church plant, and um, we, uh, we did a lot of work with the youth. It, had, it was filled, like it was 90% uh, teenagers. Yeah, I had a special grace on my life at that point in my life. So the church was 90% teenagers, and we did all kind of crazy stuff with those kids. But, and they were all from the hood. They were all neighborhood kids. And so I remember this one time we decided, let's do this crazy scavenger hunt where we take them all through the city. And, you know, like they have to find a blue rubber band here or they have to find uh, some, you know, a paper bag with something in it. And we put these things all over the city for the kids to find. And uh, I'm kind of new to the city. You know, I grew up beyond the sticks you know it wasn't even the sticks it was like the leaves where I grew up so it was way out there and I wasn't like an urban dude so uh, we're going to these different places like in the hoodie hood hood and so we're there and like you're hearing sirens all the time you know the other night uh, there were some helicopters by my house one of my daughters called me and said did you know that this was going on with a SWAT team in your neighborhood like I didn't even hear the helicopters I'm like, oh, yeah, there are. Okay. Yeah, there's helicopters. But at that point, like, I'm hearing everything. I, I can't tell an ambulance siren from a police siren from another siren. So, like, we're going to these different places. You hear sirens. You hear 
people in conflict. You know, people in conflict in the hood, it sounds like something. You know, I'm, I'm learning new words. My vocabulary is just growing in that context, uh, not in a good way. But all this stuff is going on. At one point, we were in one place, and I heard gunshots. They weren't real close, but the kids are like, I don't care about the gunshots. Where's that, where's that John we're looking for? You know, they're just looking for the John. They don't care about the gunshots. So we're going all over these places. I'm like, yikes, oh, can't wait till we get out of here. And, and then finally, the last clue takes us out of the city, like way out of the city. And now there's no streetlights. There's no houses. There's, there's just dark sky. And now every kid in my van is scared to death. <laughs> this, is, this is God's creation, y'all. Can't, can't, like, like, see that star? I don't care about the star. It's dark. I, I wish, I wish that we had a fear of the darkness the way those young people did. A holy fear of, of the kind of darkness that is in this world that dishonors God. Would that we had that kind of fear of God. Last point here uh, today. Why? Is Jesus more important than anything? Look at verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh. The Logos put on human skin. That's the thing that Augustine said. I never saw that in the philosophers. That the Jews scratched their head when they heard that, even though it was prophesied and they could look back in the Word and find it, they had missed it. That This is, in John's Gospel, this is the drop-the-mic moment. The Word, the Logos, the Creator, the One who's face-to-face with God and is Himself eternal God from eternity. He became flesh. This eternal Creator omnipotent spirit God who has known nothing but the power of of who he is. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, and yet he decides in time to take on the frailties of the human condition. The word became flesh. There's a lot of mysteries in my Bible. I don't know if you've got them all figured out. I don't. But there's no mystery like this mystery, that the Word became flesh. God takes on the frailties of the human condition and puts on skin and bones. The book of Hebrews says He becomes like us in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He's still perfect, no sin, but here God takes on flesh. Why? Why is Jesus more than, important than anything? Because Jesus is right here. Jesus is right here. The Word became flesh, and it says, and dwelt among us. The, word, the Greek word there is skenao. It means 
to put down his tent pegs. It means to settle down there. It was used in the Old Testament to talk about setting down the, the setting up a tent so that it would dwell there. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in, in the tent, in the camp of meeting. He dealt in the tabernacle. And finally, he dealt uh, in, in the temple. And this was the presence of God. But this says, now all those things are done away with. He comes. And he dwells in the person, the flesh and blood, human person of Jesus Christ. For all of my life, until I came to Christ, I believed in God. I liked God from everything I heard about him. I could have told you in some ways, I could have verbalize the gospel pretty well. I know that Jesus Christ came. I know he died for my sins. I'm glad he did because I got a lot of them. But I, I could have I said all those things, but I didn't know him at all. For me, I was happy that he was there and I was here. I went to church, but God showed up on Sunday morning uh, behind the altar. He was on the holy days and he was in the things that I would do that I was told from my religion that I needed to do to please and honor God, but he was out there. He was all over Sunday morning for about one hour. That's all the time we had, maybe 45 minutes. It was a quick service. But man, he was nowhere near Saturday night. Leave that alone. That's mine. He, he wasn't in the way I related to my brothers or my friends or someone I didn't like or someone I did like. or He wasn't in all of that. He was God distant. And I loved it that way. I heard he died for my sins. That's good. But I didn't think he was looking very closely into the situation. Verse 14 tells us something else. He shows up. He's right here. The one who was face to face with the Father God is now face to face with you. He's in your world. He's in your world. John's going to go on to tell us not only does he show up here and dwell among us, but in the 14th chapter, he's going to say, not only is he with you, but one day he's going to be in you. By the Holy Spirit, God shows up and he's right there. He's right here if you're a believer in Christ. Look at this. God is right here. Verse 16. And from his fullness, speaking of Jesus, we have all received. Moses could not give you anything from his fullness. He could give you what he received from God on the mountain, but he couldn't give you from his own fullness. But in Jesus Christ, it says, from his fullness, we have all received. What have we, what have we received? Grace upon grace. Amazing grace. Overwhelming grace. Grace after grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I love the phraseology that he uses here twice in verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In verse 14, uh, the only Son is from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is unique in all of creation. He's unique because he's the creator, but he is the only one in whom we can have the fullness of undiluted grace. 
There, there's, no, there's, no, there, there's no lack in that. It's grace. Grace looks to bless those who we would say are unblessable. It looks to forgive those who we would say are unforgivable. It looks to be kind to those who don't deserve it at all. It's the unmerited favor of God in its full potency in Jesus Christ. But not only that, he's also full of truth. Truth which demands justice. Truth which doesn't budge from his command. Truth that doesn't budge in any way from the reality of the holy character of God. He comes full of grace and full of truth. And he comes to love and to save. Romans 3 verse 26 says that he comes so that he might be just and at the same time, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He comes in grace and truth. He comes in your life, in your face. He gets involved. I want to look at one last verse here. Verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He's made him known. There's a word that's used there. It's also used in verse 14. It's also used in John 3.16. Maybe in John 3.16 you probably memorized it. God so loved the world that he gave his what? His only begotten son, right? The, the word is monogonis. Monogonis. It's two words. Mono, which means only. But the other word was understood for a long time to be a word gineo, which means to, to bring birth to. But it's probably actually a different word, genos. We get our English word genus from it. So of a kind, of a certain kind. So what, what we believe that word actually means, and you'll see if you look in the King James or older translations, you'll see only begotten. But in the newer translations, we have a better understanding of what the word means. We'll get some more of that talk on Saturday. Come on Saturday. But um, the word actually means the unique and only one. Jesus is the unique and only one. One translation of verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. This is the New Living Translation. He says, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know God. He makes it clear. And Jesus is the one who reveals the fullness of the character of God. Jesus is more important than anything else. He's eternal God. He brings light and life. And he's right here. He's right there with you. Let me conclude with this. Remember as a kid, I used to collect baseball cards. Does anyone here, has anyone here ever collected baseball cards? Glory to God, there are a few. I didn't think so. That's old school. Old school, right, bro? Yeah. So I used to collect baseball cards as a kid, and man, I was into it. I had my little paper route, and every penny I made went towards baseball cards. Maybe a little candy, too. But I was doing my thing, collecting my baseball cards. Hank Aaron was my favorite baseball player. I had every year of his baseball cards. That was like my greatest achievement in life up till that time. Some would say it probably still is. But um, I, 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 was, I spent 
all this time researching and, and getting cards and doing all this stuff. Well, in the early 1970s, um, the San Diego Padres, who are still in San Diego, the, the rumor was they're going to move to another part of the country. They were going to move to Washington, D.C. And so um, they were getting ready to move, and my favorite baseball card company was Topps. And so they started making cards that said Washington National League. They didn't know what the name of the team would be. So it just said Washington National League. But then something happened, and the team decided not to move. They're still in San Diego to this day. But they had already issued some of these cards. And the word on the street that I heard, probably from someone who was trying to get over on me, but the word on the street is, man, those cards are going to be worth money. Because they just made some, and then they heard they changed their mind, and now they're not going to be, and now there's just a few of them out there. They're going to be rare cards and worth a lot. So I started doing everything I could to find those cards. Washington National League, like players that never hardly even played. Like I would, I would trade a, a card of one of the best players in baseball for some guy who played just a very little bit and wasn't very good, but because it was Washington National League and it was going to be worth something one day. So I did that and I collected all those cards. And then I heard not too long after that, psych, no, they, actually they didn't say that then, but psych, no, they're not going to be worth anything. So I had all these cards. I had put all this money, all this effort, given away some of my best cards to get these valuable cards, and all of a sudden they're worth nothing. I was a kid. Those were baseball cards. I got over it, pretty much. <laughs> but what about you today? What are you building your life around that you think is so valuable that you're willing to do just about anything for it. Might be a career. It's a good thing. It might be education. It might be family. It might be uh, material goods and, and achievement. It might be belonging to a certain group that means so much to you. All of these things can be good in and of themselves. It might be a certain look that you're after, a certain image that you want to portray. There's nothing necessarily wrong with these things, but the thing that is wrong is if Jesus Christ isn't first and foundational to everything, all of these things become idols that take you away from the one that matters. And so with that, I urge you today, as we talk about the beauty of Jesus Christ, the great eternal God, put Jesus in the center of your life. Jesus matters more than anything. Build your life on the Lagos. Build your life on the light. Build your life on the living Lord, and you won't be put to shame. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we bless your name today. We pray, O oh God, that you would indeed draw near to your people. We pray, O oh God, as well, you've already done that in Christ. We pray that you would move our hearts to draw near to you. Lord, to come to the light and not live in the darkness. Lord, to invite you all the way in those areas where we want to hold back 
those areas and those places where we want to keep you at an arm's length. Oh God, we pray that you will invade every crack and crevice of our lives, that your name might be glorified in us and through us. Have your way, oh God, we pray. In all these things, in Jesus' name, amen.